0: Welcome to another episode of Paul Don Power, Power System Design's podcast on the latest in power and power design. I'm your host, Alex Paul, and today I've got John Peterson. He's the uh, systems ecologist and director at the Environmental Studies Program at Oberlin College. And, uh, well, everybody on this show talks about power one way or the other, but something tells me, John, that uh, we're not going to be talking nuts and bolts here. Welcome to the show, by the way.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be on the show. Um, We may be talking nuts and bolts, but maybe not nuts and bolts in the same way that, let's say, an engineer might talk about them.
0: Right. Well, of course, because at the core of every science is accuracy and precision. You've got your own little nuts and bolts that you have to deal with that don't necessarily involve uh, electrons and holes and such.
1: Well, we're interested in the electrons, but what we're particularly interested in is the relationships between electrons and the choices that people make within the built environment. So we've been, over the last decade, uh, actually more than a decade now, been developing technology for monitoring and displaying resource use within the built environment, not so that we can convince engineers um, to, you know, make different decisions, but so we can convince people who occupy the building to uh, engage in more intelligent decision-making.
0: Well, and, and that's a beautiful part about power has, as it's evolved, because 20 years ago, the only way that this would be an interesting conversation would be in academia, but today power is becoming so critical, efficiency, smart facility, smart building, that the very behavior of the occupants becomes a critical factor. You could be a software person today and consider yourself a power expert
1: yeah and I think you 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 put your finger on it, which is that the the world is very different today because um, of the capacity for providing people with feedback. The technology didn't exist previously for providing people with a deep level of real time information about their resource consumption in the built environment, and the work we're doing is premised on the idea that that information feedback can be transformative. So we're asking questions about how can you take information about how resources flows through the built environment and translate it into a form that's easily accessible to a non-technical audience so that we can engage, educate, motivate, and empower them uh, to be better stewards of the environment. So
0: that's really critical to what we're trying to do. So now, um, are there programs that you're actively involved with uh, at Oberlin that are related, or is this uh, part of a group uh, effort, or who are all the players involved?
1: Excellent question. Yeah, we've been working on developing a technology and an approach that we call Environmental Dashboard. Environmental Dashboard combines three levels of feedback. The first level of feedback is called Building Dashboard. That's a technology that monitors and displays resource use within buildings. This is something, again, we've been working on since 2000. We started working on this. Um, mm-hmm. Students and I formed a company called Lucid, which manufactures a product called Building Dashboard, and now Building OS, and and that's pretty far along. That's now um, used in thousands of buildings across the U.S., Canada and Australia as a way of, you know, sort of managing and monitoring building performance, again, with an emphasis on not just the building managers, but building occupants. The second component, which we started working on about six years ago now, is called citywide dashboard. And this is a really different scale of monitoring and display. So here we're monitoring uh, electricity and water use and environmental quality within whole communities. And the idea is to translate that into a conceptual model, an animated uh, model, animated in real time with real-time data. So basically, you see this picture of a city with gauges on it, and the images that you see change depending on how much electricity is being used, how much water is being used, uh, for your listeners, this is all posted at www.environmental-board.org, uh for our pilot community, which is the city of Oberlin. Um, and then the third level of feedback is something called Community Voices. So the other two very much focus on gathering and displaying real-time information on resource flows. Community Mm -hmm. Voices is focused on images and text drawn from interviews with community members. The idea here is really to sort of put a face and a name on the decision-making process and to really help develop what we would call a pro-environmental identity within whole communities. So people really begin to conceptualize the decisions that they're making within the built environment as really kinds of acts of citizenship, really drawing those connections between what people that they know in their community are doing and, um, and their own decision-making process. And what we do with all of this information is it's, it's displayed on a website, of course, but our key method of communication is digital signage installed throughout the community. So all of our public schools within the community have, um, have displays within them. We have them in downtown businesses, nonprofit organizations, retirement communities. Uh, you know, all over the city we basically have these displays which cycle through building dashboard, citywide dashboard, and community voices, um, and again, the idea is to really put this information out there in front of the citizens to make them aware of these resources, which for most people are out of sight, and then out of, and, and therefore out of mind.
0: Mm. Well, you know, you know something, John. That is probably one of the most comprehensive examples of real use of quote unquote big data that I have heard yet. Everybody tells me about big data, and there are a lot of companies who are, I will say groping, because they have solutions, it's just who's going to be adopting these solutions and how they're being deployed, but when I think of what you're just telling me, and, I, and, and when you think of the term big data, that, that yours is one of the first examples I've heard that pe- that I can't just simply go, well, that's not really big data, but what you're talking about definitely is.
1: Yeah, well, I think there's just enormous opportunities out there. You know, again, this transformation brought about by the internet, by monitoring technology, it's a really different world, and I think when when. Um When the utilities think about the smart grid, I think they have one thing in mind or a series of things in mind that mostly have to do with sort of their capacity to um, take advantage of information, make decisions. Uh, And I think there really has been less of an emphasis on how that same technology can really be leveraged to uh, empower citizens to um, engage in more meaningful decision-making about about resource flows. Now, so far in in our work, We've really relied principally on installing monitoring technology in buildings, so we've installed Mm -hmm. the technology in hundreds of buildings or taking advantage of of, um, data that's within building automation systems. Uh, We've spent a lot of time developing protocols for gathering data from Siemens Control, Johnson Control, Honeywell, all of the different building automation systems and gathering that up and processing it, storing it. So that's the big data side, but this emergence of the smart grid where, you know, this information is now going to be, um, you know, online in some form, uh, available for much lower cost because we're not talking about installing new sensors anymore. We're talking about taking advantage of, uh, of existing utility meters. This is going to be transformational, and this is something that I think is just starting to happen. So I think we, in some ways, I think anticipated it happening and are sort of poised to take advantage of that. But I think once you start getting to the point where it's inexpensive to make this information available. Then I think you really begin to realize the potential, the transformative potential of
0: technologies like this. I agree with you completely, John. I totally agree with you. And uh, it may not only be cost-effective, it may soon be mandatory. In Britain, for example, starting in 2015, every business over a certain size has to provide an annual report to the British government on their energy use and ways they can reduce it. New government mandate starting in 2015, and talk about a reporting mandate for energy monitoring there.
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think this level of transparency is is super important. Um, uh, you know, I think your, many of your listeners may be familiar with the Green Button Initiative in the United States, which is, which is an initiative to basically compel utilities to make uh, data available to consumers on their electricity um, consumption. It's, it's something that has, I think has a lot of traction in California right now. Um, but I think it's it's going to happen nationwide. Uh, I think the Obama administration has, um, you know, uh, spoken positively, favorably towards, uh, towards their view on this. And I think it's going to happen, and I think it really is going to be transformative, and I think this idea of, of compelling um, utilities to make fine-resolution uh, data available is, you know, it's going it's to allow people to make more intelligent decisions. And then the question really becomes, Can you really translate that into a form that's meaningful um, to people? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the sort of social science side of this comes in, the issue of you know, how do you leverage the power of what we've learned from social psychology to present data to people in a form that really is motivational? I think a lot of times, you know, the economists and the engineers assume a certain uh, way in which people make decisions, which which isn't a- actually accurate. I mean, I think, you know, for instance, people often assume in, in energy conservation programs that, you know, pro- simply providing people with information is going to motivate them to behave differently and <laughs> of evidence to suggest that that's not really the way people work, and then the economists assume, hey, if we just put a little bit of an incentive on this, people will behave differently. And in fact, you know, if people really were motivated by that, I think we'd be further along with energy conservation right now. Um, You know, it makes economic sense to do a lot of energy efficiency measures that people aren't doing. So I think there's still this outstanding question of, you know, what is the best way present information that actually motivates behavior change. And I think the social psychologists would say that, um, you know, leveraging the power of social norms is critical to that. So making data comparative among people so you can see how you're doing relative to other groups that you care about. That's very, very powerful for motivating people. And then also just addressing the issue that we're not really rational decision makers, and so thinking about how to present information in a way that is emotionally resident. Can you you present information that makes people, you know, feel something rather than just, um, you know, experience some sort of logical decision-making process? So in our work, we've been focused on things like making data Comparative. One of the things we've done is to develop a national competition among schools. We've had, uh, I think, 150 schools participate last year in the Campus Conservation Nationals. This is something we organized together with the U.S. Green Building Council, the National Wildlife Federation, and the Alliance to Save Energy. And, uh, you know, we've seen substantial reductions in electricity use in these competitions among dorms. Uh, So that's one angle we've taken on this. Another angle we've taken is um, to try to translate information into characters uh, that behave differently depending on current levels of resource use. So we have what we call empathetic character gauges, so a squirrel and a fish that exhibit different behaviors depending on how much electricity or water people are using to really kind of, you know, animate, uh, emotionalize that that resource consumption. And this is something we found very impactful in our local schools, for instance, uh, but also with adults, you know, people, you know, a happy or a sad fish actually does quite a bit to to make people, you know, understand and and appreciate at an emotional level resource consumption.
0: That's really interesting when you think about that, because obviously the data has to be interpreted by a system and that data has to be delivered to a person, but ultimately it's the person's reaction to that data that makes all the result, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's how you interpret that. Do You get information that's on a time scale that allows you to make a decision and see the consequences of the decision in a way that then allows you to refine your behavior over time. That's really the power of you know, real-time or near-real-time data. Of course, we we get feedback in the form of a utility bill, but it's essentially useless because, you know, you get this sort of aggregation of resource use over a month. And, you know, how the heck do you know whether it was your laundry machine or, you know, your stereo system or, you know, how do you know what it was that that caused that thing? So getting data down to a a temporal resolution um, where you can really – begin to sort of adjust your behavior. It's a lot like that um, miles per gallon gauge on, you know, some of these new cars of Prius, that sort of thing where you can, you know, I've I've done this sort of informal survey of Prius drivers. I ask them, hey, what do you do with that mile per gallon gauge? And most of them will say, I have a lot of fun playing with that. You know, I kind of how good I can do with it. And then, you know, I ask them the next question is, do you drive differently in other vehicles as a result of that? And most of them say yes. So, so part of the point there is once you get people, once you give people the information that allows them to modify their behavior, you know, our hope, and I think there's some evidence to support this, is that that can actually carry over into other areas as well. So it's more than just, you know, are you turning off the lights? It's, you know, it's bigger
0: than that. I agree completely. Well, it's, but then again, people... We are essentially apes, and we like to play with fun stuff. And if you can incentivize good behavior, you'll get good behavior. I mean, just think of the entire biofeedback physical fitness market, you know, the Fitbit stuff and the like. Yeah. If if, if you had asked me 10 years ago that people who were sitting at desks would take extra steps every day just to get a little incentive because – the most steps that we could get to the parking space closer to the door or something, I'd have said, you're crazy. But there are companies who are incentivizing fitness in that fashion. So why not incentivize energy usage?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Although I want to sort of stick in that word incentivize a little bit, because again, <laughs> going back to what I said earlier, I think the evidence is pretty good that, you know, the money part is not always such a good incentive But people are motivated by various different things, and for some people, like points. I think a lot of times it really does kind of come back to social norms, and it's like, can I do better than myself? Can I do better than other people that I like to compare myself with? I think those are the really powerful incentives, and you know, that idea that I think is implicit in what you're saying, that kind of gamification side, can we somehow make a game out of this? Um, you know, so that, so that there's, there's some sort of, like, some sort of treat. Again, I think we overemphasize the economic, the, you know, the power of an economy. Right. But some sort of a treat that has me comparing myself and, you know, sort of building points or building skills or, or doing better than someone else. Um, I think those are the things that really we, were, we, we evolved to
0: appreciate and respond to. Oh, oh. I agree with you completely, especially coming from my side as an audience development person and the like. Um, when it comes to, when I talk about incentivizing, I rarely talk about monetary. I'm almost mm-hmm. always talking about community participation because frankly, the only, uh, well, publishing is one of the first areas where we had to learn how to incentivize without direct cash because it was, you know, obviously publishing has tried that in the past, but, uh, in the long run, content—you know, good content—and all of this other. But the bottom line is that works for this for every business. The quote-unquote content, in the case of a uh, energy incentive program, would have to be how it's incentivized. Is it rewards based? Do you get little badges, you know, gold stars? You get get to tell your friends you're a smarter person than they are. You know, but the moment it becomes a competition, as you pointed out, it goes beyond. Just a simple incentive it becomes a well oh, I gotta beat him you know
1: exactly exactly
0: you know I well, think it, well then again it, that's what go ahead I'm sorry, John
1: um, I was going to say part of it is that you know I, I, when we think about like why people do what they do and our current relationship with the environment, for me there's sort of an evolutionary context for this for the last you know, for 99% of the last 50,000 years of modern human evolution, we lived in this very close and intimate relationship with the natural world around us. The decisions we made as individuals and as communities were determined by this very intimate feedback. Um, You know, we responded to the water, the sunlight, you know, what was under our feet, and, you know. You fast-forward to today where we spend 90% of our lives within the built environment, and Mm -hmm. it's just this very recent period of time when we lived in such a separate condition from the natural environment. And I think when we begin to think about, you know, the technologies that we need, I think we really need to look towards technologies that reinsert that connection um, with nature, that feedback with the natural system, and so our work is very much focused on trying to reinsert those, um, those connections with nature, and part of it is connection with nature, part of it is connection with each other, you know? I think we've, we've also, you know, grown various kinds of isolation from each other, and I think that combination of saying, hey, you know, your resources are having this sort of an impact on the natural world, and this is how you're doing relative to other people, Um, I think it's creating that sort of community context for thinking about our resource consumption decisions that's going to be really powerful and transformative.
0: I agree with you completely, John. Now, unfortunately, this is a podcast, and uh, as much as I'd love to talk with you forever, uh, we're running the clock out. So uh, what I will do is I always give my guests uh, the last word in my show. So uh, this way, if there was something that you'd like to add that we missed or – Something about the organization or the school that you'd like to add, and also toss in the school's website. Um, but other than that, the uh, floor is yours.
1: Well, I think I actually probably just said most of what I I, I would have said, which is that you know, for me, the uh, the power of, uh, of of leveraging internet-based technology. To provide people with feedback on their resource use, and to provide that in a context that's very much much focused on community, is just essential to the changes that we need to um, bring about. And um, we've done this pilot in the Oberlin community. We've been talking with a number of communities um, across the country about um, implementing environmental dashboard within uh, within their own cities. Um, and uh, so, if there are folks out there who are who are interested in what they heard in our conversation together, I urge them to take a look at environmentaldashboard.org, and if they like what they see, um, there's some contact information there, and we'd be happy to talk with you.
0: Cool. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, John. I mean, especially since you've brought in this interesting perspective that is related to but gives our audience just a little bit of a challenge in some of the uh, more um, human-oriented data space, because, as you point out, at the end of the day, it has to be interpreted by humans. It has to be accessible and usable. So all these systems that are being designed at the end of the day has to serve that, or they will ultimately serve nothing.
1: I agree with you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, hey, John, again, thank you so much. And obviously, we were going on such a roll, we got to talk for even longer, so we've got to bring you back on the show, but we'll talk some more later.
1: Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Oh,
0: pleasure's mine. And I'd like to thank everybody out there in the audience for taking the time to be with us. We wouldn't be here without you. Tell your friends. This is Alex Pauls for Paul gone Power. Have a great day.